Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, the big change program and well start health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an incredible and inspirational life. I'm going to be real brief with the introduction because today's interview is the longest I've ever done. It's almost two hours, just the conversation, and it's with the Anthony Evans. I met him at the Wellness Forum Health Conference this past November, and he just blew everyone away with his inspirational story and the utter positivity and focus and, I don't know, just a, a spirit that I guess has been honed. It's available to each of us, I suppose, I hope, but it's been honed by D'Anthony's life of challenges and his mindset that has allowed him to overcome them. Um, he found out around the age of six that he had this rare disorder called neurofibromatosis. It's hard for, even, for me to say um, that caused these painful tumors to emerge at random all over his body. And he was told from pretty much as young as he could understand that it, it, it generally leads to this highly aggressive form of cancer, MPNST, malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, a little bit easier for me to say. So he and his mom were just sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for this cancer to strike. When? Where? And these tumors would grow all over his body. There's photos of him on the Internet with what basically looks like a loaf of bread on his skull on top of his head. And just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of these tumors would pop up. He said each one felt like multiple bee stings all the time. He rejected the cocktail of painkillers that were generally prescribed for people with this disorder because it just made him feel not alive. And so he turned to sports. Uh, he turned to academic achievement. And then his life fell apart in so many ways. And rather than rehash it here, just let me say you will not be sorry you've uh, invested the two hours to listen to the whole story. One quick item of business before we get there, and that is the next cohort of WellStart Health slash Big Change Program begins this coming Monday, May 21st. We're already sending out information to participants, so you can't delay much longer. We're closing it out on Thursday. Today's Tuesday. If you're interested, go to wellstarthealth.com slash program where you can apply and we will try to expedite it if you're a fit. All right, let's get to it. Without further ado, D. Anthony Evans, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. How are you, Howard? I'm doing great. I'm uh, I'm fifty percent more energetic now than I was before I uh, I saw your beaming face. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and and likewise you as well. All right. So uh, we we met um, a few months ago at the Wellness Forum Health Conference, and everybody was blown away by your talk, by your story, by your energy. Yes, sir. Um, I among them. And then the, the following morning, um, I rewarded myself by going to the gym at an ungodly hour. And, <laughs> and you were there and helped helped me do my first unassisted pull up. Yes, sir. Yes. And you did an amazing job. I just must add that in there. Yeah, thanks. So I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, mess that up by doing another one. I figured I did. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. I know you've been working at it. <laughs> um, but, you know, your your calling card is just inspiration, just oozing out of every pore. Everyone who comes across you is inspired to make themselves better in in some dimension. Um, Thank you. And so I'm so excited to be privileged to share your story with with my listeners. So why don't we why don't we get into it? That's like. Okay. Give, give, us, give us the story. So, you know, basically, um, you know, I was born with a rare neurological disorder um, called neurofibromatosis. Um, it's mostly referred to as NF1 or NF2. And with NF, it basically causes tumors to spontaneously form on your nerves um, anywhere in your body without notice. And as a child, if it's active in your body, your doctor usually, um, you know, lets you know that you will be fighting cancer the second half of your life. They just don't know when. Um, so every NF patient and their parents is walking around after they've been diagnosed every day after that, wondering, when is my turn to fight cancer? And it's a very, it messes with you mentally, it messes with you physically. Um, emotionally, I have them over 84% of my body and I would equate the pain because they're on my peripheral nerves to that of a multiple bee stings all at the same time, everywhere, perpetually, um, sometimes greater than others. I happen to have hypersensitive tumors. Some people's tumors don't affect them. Um, mine, let me know they're there regularly. Um, so as a child, instead of taking the cocktail, um, Norco, Percocet, Oxycontin, Remron, Celexa, and Neurontin is just a few um, that a typical NF patient um, administers to themselves three times a day and doesn't really have a quality of life. And after that first dose of that and just not being able to move like my mind is saying walk and I can't get up because I'm in such a state from the drugs. I didn't want any part of the, the chemical part of what I was going through and just got heavily, heavily rather in, in engulfed in sports and the sports didn't take away the pain, but it kind of distracted me from, from the pain. Um, so this was this was, um, was diagnosed at six 
um, really knew what it was at about eight. Became self-conscious about it about eight and a half. I had um, I had them internally, but I didn't understand what that pain or discomfort was as a child. I only knew what I saw. And what I saw was a tumor on my wrist that basically looked like a nipple and one on my left knee. And the one on my knee being that I was um, a long jumper, I was in track and a basketball player, it would from time to time um, give me a lot of discomfort. And the University of Chicago in, in 1993 was doing a study where in exchange for my likeness, they would um, do the actual surgery because our tumors have been coded as pre-existing um, cosmetic lesions as opposed to the conduit for MPNST, which is a rare sarcoma that's associated with our disease, the cancer they're talking about. So my mother was excited about this actual health care that we're going to receive in form of surgery um, and signed me up. Um, but let me back up. Before that, um, my mother was diagnosed with AIDS and HIV. Um, and I lost her the second week of junior year, but I continued to fight on um, because of her and my whole life and my inspiration is pulled from her. Um, the doctor basically was not honest with me. And when he was sharing about the effects of the surgery, he made, he kind of minimized the severity and at 16, I didn't understand that neuro, you know, meant nerve and you need your nerves to run wind sprints for three or four hours. Um, in Evanston, where I'm from, you must dress August 1st or you have to forfeit your spot on the team. Um, and the doctor assured me that, you know, it was subcutaneous. It was above the skin and you'll be as good as new August 1st. Make a long story short, I wasn't who I needed to be August 1st. Um, I had to forfeit my spot on the team. And 30 days after that, I lost my mother to AIDS and HIV um, the second week of junior year. So I basically lost the two things I was waking up in the morning for. Like my mother had me in a program called STAY, Step Towards academic excellency. It was an Ivy League program for minorities that were bright. And they had kind of recruited me in seventh and eighth grade. And all I had to do was graduate and keep my grades up. And I would secure a scholarship in basically any school I wanted to go to. So this was my mission and really what my mother programmed in me to get us out of our impoverished situation um, in reflection. That's how I see it. So I couldn't like hang out after school. I had to be home before the street lights came on. My whole life, my ears still aren't pierced. My whole life was dedicated to this woman and basketball and making her smile and just trying to, I just saw her cry too many nights and I, I just, we just come from nothing. And I was on this mission to do something for my mother. And um, when she died, it just, 
it was like as a child, you have structure, you know, right from wrong. Um, even if you don't want to hear it, you know, you have you have somebody that's holding you accountable. And when she died, I, I got mad at her. I got mad at God. I was just angry because I didn't understand how I did everything I was asked to do. Everything I was asked to do. And then I'm left here by myself not knowing what to do or who to trust or who to listen to. The woman I trusted told me she was sick six months before she passed. Um, and it wasn't because she was being dishonest. She thought it was too much for me and felt that I needed to focus on education. And I agree with her to a certain extent, but it had the opposite effect. Like I gave up on life. The day she died, like the pain was so intense that I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to move forward. So that turned into a destructive downward spiral. So it, I mean, it sounds like, um, like your reality looked like two completely different things. It must, it sounds, I mean, just as I'm listening to it, it sounds so confusing that on the one hand, you've got this potentially deadly disease that's going to lead to cancer. On the other hand, it's a cosmetic thing that they can take care of easily. On the one hand, your mother is this vibrant driving force in your life. And, and then the next day you find out that she's extremely vulnerable and frail. I'm yes, it's it's uh, she told me when magic came out, I never forget. It was six it's six o'clock news and she was crying in the living room. And so much that I heard her from my bedroom. And I walked out there. What are you crying about, mom? And Magic is on TV, like professing to the world that um, he has AIDS. Um, and she said, I have it too. And I remember her not letting me drink out of her pop cans or not letting me eat off with her her silverware. I didn't put two and two together. I thought she was stingy and selfish, to be honest with you. She would not let me eat after her. And I thought it was the weirdest thing for several years. Um, but that night it all made, I was like, wow. And then pieces just started materializing in my mind. Um, but yeah, that it was a bunch of emotions. It was a bunch of things going on. I had positive and negative and positive and negative. And I just, I, I folded. I folded as a 16 year old AIDS orphan. Um, my, I had a father, but he chose substance abuse over asking me, did I have anywhere to live? Um, he came to our funeral and, you know, if I came to my son's mother's funeral and I knew she was the primary caregiver, I'd ask, you know, you have somewhere to stay? Who are you going to live with? And he told me it was good to see me and he left. And, and, and I'm cool with that. But what I'm getting at is that I was alone. I had my grandmother. I had aunts, but I was angry and they were trying to parent me. And my parent just died. And so I pushed them away was homeless temporarily, got recruited by a street gang, um, and began to abuse, um, use, and sell drugs just to survive. Um, and not necessarily because nobody loved me or I didn't have anywhere to go. I mean, 
my godfather was a reverend of our church. Like I didn't want to be preached to either in this time. Like I just wanted to be left alone. Um, so the street gang. Yes. Did you feel like they understood you in a different way than your 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 aunts and grandmother and godfather? I felt like they weren't asking me how you doing. Like my grandmother, my godfather, and my aunts, they wanted me to grieve. I wanted to ignore it and pretend like it never happened because it was that much of a hot button issue in my spirit. Like the thought of it, I would just bust into tears and disintegrate. It, it was, and I didn't want any parts of that. I had my pride and ego at 16. I was pride filled too. I'm a man now. And men don't cry. I didn't have a man to show me how to be a man, ever. I, my mother couldn't show me how to be a man. I had to figure that out. And what I did know about men is that you're not supposed to cry. That's what I thought. That's what you see on TV. That's who raised me, TV. And so I, I, I compartmentalized it. And all they wanted to do was talk about my mother not being here and what they could do for me. And I, I just wanted silence on that. The street gang didn't care about that. They really didn't care. And in reflection, that's messed up. In the moment, though, I'm with people who are saying they care for me and they're not talking about my mother. And I was safe. Mm -hmm. And, and and I was vulnerable. It was a time where I needed somebody, and and they were there. And it, it, um, sound, it sounds like they probably were happy about your skill set. Very happy about my skill set, and happy that I had the mind that I had. Because they didn't necessarily want me to be a gangbanger. They wanted me for financial reasons. They wanted me for my mind. Um and. What happened is engulfed in the gang, but still the grief and things were still there. And they were really, my teenage years were dealing with this grief turbulence that I've been ignoring. And what I would do is on all of the trigger dates, which is her death date, September 13th, I'd get submerged in drugs and alcohol and disappear and be inebriated for three or four days just to get through those three or four days surrounding her death anniversary. And then I'd be okay from September 13th to December 21st, which is her birthday, where I was born on her birthday. So that rekindles up. Uh, you can't make this stuff up. I was celebrating my birthday for 16 years with someone that passed. And every time that date would come around, it's hard to celebrate and be happy when the person you shared it with is not here. It's mm -hmm. extremely difficult. And I would engage in the same behavior, the same thing, drugs and alcohol, try to numb myself for three to four days just to get through it. And then I'd be good until I got to June, Mother's Day, or July, June or July, whichever Mother's Day is in, and I fall apart again. And if you look at that, they're spaced out just enough where I get like three or four months of peace and serenity, and then I fall apart. 
They're perfectly triangulated in a triangle where I could not really get in front of the year. When I get my stuff together, fall apart, get it together again, fall apart, get it together. And I was on, this wasn't a spiral. This is what I call the Bermuda Triangle because it was just a triangle of death. So much so that in my seventh year of that type of therapy, I woke up um, strapped to a board in Alexian Brothers Behavioral Health Center. I had tried to take my life and I took everything in the medicine cabinet. Um, I don't really remember the act. I don't even remember before that. I just remember the charcoal taste in my mouth um, for them making me vomit the pills up. And I, I, I remember, you know, being very agitated that I couldn't move my arms. And as bad as this sounds, this is really what changed my life for the for the better, um, because there was a doctor in there. And these type of doctors, they see, you know, substance abuse individuals and and, and see this story on its surface so much. I mean, those facilities are usually like a revolving door um, and they usually you get sober and then they sign you out. This particular doctor, you know, and I know it's because I came in there combative, but he said, Mr. Evans, I, I want you to, you know, participate in group. And I'm telling him, I'm fine. I don't know what happened, but I know what you guys said happened. I'm okay. I'm fine. I just want to go home. And could you please let me out of the restraints. I said it nicely the first time. He said, Mr. Evans, you're not really in a position to go home. Um, I really want you to give group a, a shot. And I said a couple expletives at him because now I'm getting frustrated because they won't. I, I'm knowing now that he, they're not going to let me off of this board that's restrained. And in my third expletive, he said, look, I'm going to make it very clear and very simple for you. You're going to participate in group or you're basically going to be here indefinitely. And I say that because the two prerequisites that I need to take power of attorney over you is that you came in here combative, trying to harm my staff, so you're a harm to others, and you tried to kill yourself. And those are the two things that I need, you know, to call my judge friend to take custody of you, and you will be here indefinitely. That really riled me up. Instead of that scaring me, I said some more expletives and he told them to take him to his room. They took me to my room um, and I wasn't able to leave. He wasn't lying. It was a locked floor, fifth floor, Lexington Brothers, Hoffman Estates in Illinois, and I, I wasn't able to leave. And on the third week of my rebellion, he made it interesting. He transferred me to the side of the psychiatric ward that the real um, mentally challenged individuals were that were talking to napkin holders. They're unresponsive to anything and they're just zombies. I'm, in zom I'm on the zombie side. Before I was with the manic depressors, the, the dope fiends and the at-risk teenagers. And now I'm over there in full-blown, one flew over the cuckoo's nest heaven. 
And it was on that side, I didn't last more than maybe an hour. And I was having my nurse page that paged my doctor. And he came and talked, he said, you ready? I said, I'm ready. And he broke me at three weeks. And we went back on the other side and I just, you know, got introduced to some amazing, um, some amazing doc cl clinicians and social workers that, you know, they were determined to show me that life doesn't have to be like this. And the reason you're so angry and the reason you don't want to be here is because you've never dealt with your mother leaving. And that's completely normal. Um, and I learned some techniques. They taught me how to burn my feelings on paper. I just, I got the reboot though in that hospitalization. Go ahead, I, I think I cut you off. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm curious um, about that period between, you know, when your mother died and when the uh, you were brought into the, the the locked ward. At that point, were you still undergoing all this medical care for your tumors? Were they still growing or? No, no. That's when my pride and ego was in full effect in the sense that I said that I would never talk to my doctor again. The one person that could save my life. I made a pact with myself that I will never talk to him because he lied to me about the severity of my operation. And had he been a little more forthcoming with the risk and, I, and that I was going to lose basketball, I wouldn't have done it. Because in my 16-year-old mind, I had told myself that had I still been able to compete, it would have distracted me and I would have been able to lean on my team. And I would have had my team you know, I would have lost my mom, but I would have still had basketball. I didn't have to have that surgery. The rush to have the surgery is because we hadn't been covered my whole life, the 16 years, and my mom saw the, saw the study. So that's what the, the rush to surgery was, that somebody finally wants to do an operation on you after I've been asking your entire life. Yeah. Um, that, that, so I was just angry. So, but during this time, were the tumors still growing? Yeah, they were still doing what they do, and I'm ignoring them like a dumb man. And, like and, I, they're, and they're hurting all the time. They're hurting all the time. Um, Cause, cause I was an average marijuana smoker as well, um, yeah. cannabis smoker. And um, in retrospect, I know that helped, but that's not even why I was smoking before. But with everything I know now, <laughs> It absolutely all makes sense because I was heavily, heavily cannabis induced in that time. And I know now that cannabis does help my tumors receptors with pain. Like that's a proven fact. And I didn't know that then though. And this is the only thing that I can equate as the reason why I was able to not, I didn't go see him for 18 years. I heard 18. <laughs> How stupid am I? 18 years. Because I was upset that I felt he lied to me. So yeah, the tumors were still growing, but I was still pretending that I, it was the pink elephant in the room. It was the dumbest thing I've ever done to be completely honest with you in retrospect. I was stupid. So d during that time, did you stay with the gang the whole time or did you have sort of career aspirations? Did you end up going back to school or thinking about future? 
No, um, even with the gang. So I still graduated high school on the dean's list. Um, I made up two years of work at my house with the pregnancy tutors. Like when the girls that get pregnant, they send the tutor home with you and you do your work at home. My dean, because I was that student, I, I had worked this hard with my mom and the whole school was around this program uh, for gifted minorities. So they came to me like, you're gonna throw all this away? You worked since seventh grade for this, D. Um, I passed, but it wasn't with the high marks. Like the scholarship stuff was out, but I passed um, and made up two and a half years worth of work my senior year in like seven months and made the dean's list, walked the stage at graduation and everything after dropping out the second week of junior year. Um, after that, went to uh, even in the even when I was recruited, I did a year and a half, two years at Columbia. Um, I tried, I tried, I tried. I just couldn't stay focused. Columbia was, University in New York? No, Columbia um, Music and University and Arts and Music University in Chicago. Okay. Because I I have a background in in music as well, and oh. I'm a. You didn't know that? No. Yeah, I'm a I'm a poet. I paint pictures with words, Howard. You want to hear something? Sure. All right. And it, it, it's fitting in the sense that this is a coping mechanism that I used um, when my mother dies. Painful, but bear with me. Tears fill up my eyes when I sit and reminisce. I miss my mother's hugs and I miss my mother's kiss. I often find myself cuddled up with her pictures. My peers don't understand because my peers don't really miss her. Why'd you have to leave me, mommy? Why'd you have to go? Why am I left alone? Mommy, why before I'm grown? I feel like popping pills or getting a gun and ending this. Or maybe ending it all like Biggie Smalls and slitting my wrist. See, I don't... Give a care and I'm often asking why. Why'd you have to leave me? Mommy, why'd you have to die? That's why I blaze my reefer. Cause there's no more Mother's Day for me, bruh. She died. Gone left me on this planet. Feeling weaker. Only 16 my world crushed. Imagine seeing a machine pump life into your mom's lungs or time's done. Counted the drops of IV flow to our arm, yelling, why me? It busted my heart. It broke inside me. So I locked myself up in my crib. Revolver, one bullet, cock squeezed and spin. Three clicks I didn't win. I'm still here. Felt that my peers didn't grasp the depth of my speech. Only the ones with family resting in peace ingested my grief. While live is how I thought daily. Is God shady? Does he hate me? How'd he let Cherie? leave a baby. And that's kind of what I learned when they, you know, when I was hospitalized, like, write it down, D, write it down. And that's a song that I was never able to finish. But when I, when those trigger dates would come, you know, post my hospitalization, this I sit here and recite this and just cry and, and just deal with it and try to be still in the storm, not even knowing that's what I was doing. Mm, wow. But yeah, Columbia, um, I'm heavenly in the music is my thing. And that turned into um, promoting 
concerts and 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 young artists promotion at clubs and things like that. And started a company called Global 360 where we brokered time for air uh, we brokered airtime for Clear Channel and um, CBS, giving young um, businesses and small businesses an opportunity to be on cable through geo targeting. Um, I have found my niche. One of my mentors, Morris Butch Stewart, um, had taught me how to make jingles at like 12 through this program at my uh, at my junior high. So I was pretty crafty at that. And I just took what he taught me, coupled with what I already knew and, and, and linked up with the right business partners. And we were able to put people on cable television that, you know, an, an account exec would quote you for the nation instead of the people that would patronize your business. And there's a huge market for that. They don't they don't really show you how to market to who's gonna patronize you. They show you how to buy marketing for the whole world when the whole world is not coming so, to your small town to get an oil change. And I I, I niched I finally mentioned that market. But that's what I was doing. Gotcha. So I mean it looks like you know, like this is some some weird science fiction movie where you where you split <laughs> you split in two. Yes. Right? I mean I'm just yes. seeing like that 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 beautiful song poem you just recited was both I heard so much about I'm a victim and yet the way you used it was to reclaim your agency. It's like I'm yes. I'm, I'm you know, and 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 this kid who's you know self-destructing massively and at the same time as a person who's like a really sharp go-getting entrepreneur. Like yes. I feel like I'm having <laughs> interviews with two completely different interviews with two completely different people. You are, and that was supposed to be my secret. Um no, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh it's an interesting dichotomy my whole life and, and that's why I can speak in Cook County Jail and in Congress and have done both. <laughs> Because the story just resonates with so many people. There's really not a crowd of people that if you read my story from front to back, couldn't point at a piece like, yeah, I relate to that. I just know because I've been everywhere and nobody gets the same thing. Right. <laughs> nobody <laughs> nobody gets the same thing ever. Yeah. Well, it's like... Uh... You know, we're we're all like waiting to be born, and we're like ordering, you know, little bits of the, like this experience and this experience, and you're like, ah, shit, I'll take it all. <laughs> right, right. And right. they're like, whoa, 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 D. You know, there's like, no, there's no, no, just, yeah, just fill yeah, it up. Yeah. Hey, and before I felt like a victim, I felt I was cursed. Why, God? Why? Why me? I just was born, yo. Know, from the day I knew what I was, I knew I had a problem. Mm. You know what I'm saying? The, the day I understood who I was as a little boy, I knew I had a nipple on my knee and none of the other kids had nipples on their knees because they were pointed out and I didn't want to go to school. I'm talking about in nursery school, like when, when, when this type of trauma started. So what I'm saying that to say is that now what was a, once a curse from when I was ever, I'm talking about when I was first able to understand anything was I felt I was cursed and my curse has turned into a blessing in the sense that I believe that my God doesn't make mistakes. 
And if my guy doesn't make mistakes, this was supposed to happen. And all of this happened to me because I'm the only one that can handle it with a smile as my mother getting AIDS and HIV, but somehow standing in front of my high school for months with the megaphone condoms and HIV prevention literature. Like, what is in a person that's dying? No, they're dying. It's 1993. No, you're going to die because you have AIDS and everybody's dying. I mean, this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. But you're smiling and happy, like really happy, not fake happy, not pretend happy. Like you're beaming. We're at church three times a week and you're living life like you don't know that you're you got months to live. That's my model, though, you know, and, and no matter what happens or what I go through, I got to remember what I come from. And I come from that lady that did that. I haven't seen a woman on TV and movies in real life that have been handed a death sentence on it and then try to save everybody else. I haven't met these people yet. So I don't look at it as if something that happened to me. This was, for some reason, me and her were born for everybody else. And I've just accepted it. I've been running from it my entire life. And now it's just, it's very enthusing. And it just makes my spirit lighten up because I know that all my pain, every day that I do touch five people, because I see them and they we exchange information and it's weird how it happens every single day. I know what I do in the world. And I, I, I believe that's why I'm still here. We haven't even got to the surgeries and, and the other part of the story, but I know that's why I'm, this is why I'm alive to have cancer and tumors and to show people, yeah, it's messed up. But check this out. Everybody that didn't wake up last night or everybody didn't wake up this morning, rather, would willfully trade all of that, all of my pain, all of my tears, everything I've been through for one more day. I know it. I know everybody that didn't wake up this morning would willfully take everything that I thought I was going to complain about to spend one more time with their child, to see their mother smile one more time. Life is just too short. And I'm here to show people that through my story, using my story as the shiny object. So one, one thing that when you when you said from the day I knew who I was, I knew I was a problem. Like I just I heard the echo of um, I think it was W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah. From like 1903 or something yeah. in the souls of black folks. Yeah. Yeah. Use yeah. that phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, what what does it feel like to be a problem? And I don't, I don't know why I'm bringing that up, except it really it touched well, me on this whole other level of, um, you know, the way you've shifted from like, I'm a problem to like, I'm a solution. Yes. And that's what it is. And I believe that you got to show the bad before you could, a lot of people like to gla glamorize and glorify, you know, their arrival. Mm -hmm. Nobody care about your arrival, okay? We care about how you got there. And that's the difference. You know, I don't, I share it all. And I believe I have to share it all to make the impact 
in people's lives. People don't want some perfect thing handy, like, look, you can be perfect too. That's not real. Not with the people I've interacted with. They want somebody that fell, that failed, that crashed, that burned, and got some masking tape and some band-aids and some Elmer's glue and put their self back together because it humanizes me. Yeah. And that's what this is about. Yeah. And uh, and also the fact that you say, you know, you know, m my mother and I, we were born for everybody else. And, no, you know, having met you and seeing like you're one of the most positive, happy people that I've ever met. It's 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 it's, it's kind of ironic that the minute you took on that sacrifice that you were able to to be happy. It was hard. It was hard. And and don't get me wrong. I get upset like everybody else. The problem isn't with getting upset. The problem is staying stuck in it. That's what's wrong with us. Everybody, there's the people that pretend to not be upset are frauds because we're humans. It's part of human nature is emotion. And we don't have control over it. Um, no matter how many meditation classes you do, there's somebody who has your number and your button. <laughs> I, I don't care who you are, okay? Unless you were born in a Petri dish, there is somebody that has your button too and your stream and has the puppet thing for you too, you know? The thing is, it's dealing with those emotions and then keeping it moving. It's when you hold on to it. I get pissed because I'm a human, okay? But I don't stay pissed. And people who stay pissed, I kind of move away from because it's contagious. <laughs> you know, it, it rubs off. Hi. So, so um, I want to get back to the the social workers and the people who finally reached you when uh, when you you know left the zombie war, waving a white flag. Yes, um, because because we're still really far away from yeah. the person you've become. I'd like to hear you know continue the the narrative. Yes, so um, from the zombie ward, um, you know, met these. I don't know what we even call them clinicians. They were like social workers and and hospital staff counselors rather, um, and they just taught me. Some some coping mechanisms. That's all. They when you you feel what you feel, D. Your normal thing is to shut down or lash out. Now, how about putting that energy on a piece of paper or a napkin, crumbling it up, and then flushing it down the toilet or burning it in the ashtray? And then when that's gone, it's up to you to go back to it. What's funny about that is when I met my teacher. He has a similar thing called catch and release, like a fish. You catch it, okay? You observe it. You do three-second delay, and then you throw it back. And he, he, he kind of, one of his, one of his tools that he taught me is to use that when you become to get overwhelmed. And it's very much in line with what they taught me when I was hospitalized. It was write it down and burn it. And if you want to go back to that, that's up to you. But now in this moment, it's not there anymore. Um, but again, got through that. Life was going well. I told you I started the business. Um, but let me, 
I did skip how I got introduced to the weight. So after I got out of the hospital, I did a post program. Um, it's not a halfway house, but they were like, D, being that you came in here, you tried to kill yourself. You're doing great. You're doing amazing. But we suggest that you do some aftercare living with counselors on site. At least do that for, you know, a couple months. I didn't want to do it, but these people had me feeling better than I had felt since my mom died. And I really didn't want to lose how I felt because I, I really have felt, I don't even know how to explain it. I wasn't me. I wasn't, I don't know who I was, but they had kind of, you know, got me into a different situation. Um, I had a roommate that had just come home from prison and this gentleman was very intimidating. He wasn't mean, but when he said something, he kind of felt like you had to do it. And he, we had um, 30 minutes for rec. And we this actually started in the hospital and he went to aftercare living with me. Um, it was Serenity House. I was in Alexian Brothers and then from Alexian Brothers, you go to Serenity House. And it actually started in the hospital, but had carried on. And because I'm with him, like, you know, and I, I, I'm I'm intimidated. And he's an avid workout junkie and, you know, encouraged me to come downstairs with him. And I told him I don't really train. I'm not, you know, I'm a basketball player. We do push-ups and pull-ups and jump rope and things. And he's like, I need you to spot me. And he wasn't smiling. <laughs> so so I went down with him and I spotted him. And this, you know, and we became training buddies. Really, I didn't have a choice, but that's what I called it. This is my training buddy because I didn't really train. And then it turned in, I want you to try this. I don't live weight. No, I really think you should try it. And then slowly but surely, before I knew it, um, he had introduced me to creatine. Uh, whey protein shakes and that you beat the muscle up, you feed it and it comes back bigger. That was his, those were his golden words. We beat the muscle up, we feed it, it comes back bigger. It's not astrophysics, D. We beat the muscle up, we feed it, it comes back bigger. So he had programmed that in my head. So now I'm 157 pound guy naturally my entire life, maybe 160, um, that is on this calorie intake and muscle building mission. But Howard, I have to tell you, when I saw my first, when I my, my pec was able to move and I saw my first ab and my, my bicep and I'm in the mirror and I'm like, okay, I can really gain weight. And I kind of got addicted. I was like, I can do this. Mm. And that's when D. Anthony Evans um, you know, weight training career started in a in a in a rehabilitation facility that was saving my life because I tried to take it myself. That that's the true story. <laughs> it's almost like uh, you know, your body had been producing these lumps that you didn't want and didn't like, and here was a chance to produce like. Yeah, the, the right, yeah. the right kind of lungs. right, right kind of lungs. Right, yeah, that's an interesting way to look at. It. Yeah, but that's true. That's true. It's absolutely true. So, um, 
you know, really got heavily involved in powerlifting. Um, but the powerlifting circuit that I was uh, a part of wasn't the the traditional powerlifting circuit. It was a uh, you know, there's an underground and everything, and it, like literally, there's an underground and everything. And the the few it, we call them bets. They be bets. They be powerlifting bets. And I, I got up to about six, seven, seven hundred pounds um, on on great days, and so seven hundred pounds of what? Deadlifting. That was my thing. Like pulling seven hundred pounds off the ground. So deadlift is when you put the, the yeah. bar, the big bars on the ground. It's got three hundred right. three hundred pounds. It's a fifty pound bar. It's got three hundred pounds on each end of it, and you just grab it with your hands. And you lift it up to your waist or over your head? You lift it up to your waist. So it's lower, promotes lower back and spine um, strength. And I could push 450 off my chest 15 times. I got up to 315 pounds of 44 in the waist. Um, and I was, a, I was a, not a very happy guy, but I was happy with my strength. Um, but as I'm drinking these powders and eating these large quantities of meat, my tumors did go crazy though. You know, in reflection, they, they did, they, they were everywhere. Um, Mm. but in my ignorance, I didn't attribute any of that to what I'm consuming, I I, I really because as I knew it, I'm eating the nutritious thing to eat that promotes optimal health. That's what it said on the package. <laughs> it said promotes optimal health, and you can look like this guy on this package if you keep drinking this three times a day, forever. And that and I'm just dumb and don't come from a muscle background, and I believed them. It's really as simple as that. And and, the, and these powders and the meats were were propo- were promoting lots of things growing. Exactly, exactly. I mean, when you do ten thousand calories a day, forty pounds of chicken breast a month, and drink whey and casein shakes, you know, whenever you can get them down your throat. And don't get me wrong, I'm doing this, and I am getting stronger. So in my mind, there is a benefit. But where I call myself out is I noticed that my stomach was getting bigger, too. I'm doing all this training and the cardio is not knocking off this pregnancy I have going too. you know, like it just wasn't. It was growing, too. Like I'm getting bigger, but I'm I have a huge stomach um, and I didn't get it. And I didn't know who to ask. I hadn't talked to that guy. I don't know if that guy was still alive. They, they really taught me this. And I was big. I was big, so I looked like I couldn't ask anybody. It's probably me, though. Uh-huh. I'm like, I'm 315 pounds. What I'm gonna start asking advice now when I'm a monster? It was just, it was me, brother. Is what I'm getting at. But that lifestyle, I can say with a clear conscience, contributed to what happened to me um, via the tumors and and the cancer. I I am convinced, I know for a fact, the acidity created 
by that lifestyle of that old, that whole stomach was basically a gumbo pot of, of months and years of chicken and, and, and dairy. I mean, and you put dairy and chicken in in something that can't breathe. I was trying to think of something that's big enough, a surgical glove, and it's going to blow up, a balloon. Eventually, the gas is going to blow up. Like, these are facts. I do demonstrations on them with meat and dairy and things that can't breathe, and guess what? That methane gas leaves one way or another. Mm -hmm. So when you we, we were doing your powerlifting... Um, I don't know much about the life except that people who do it seriously very often compete in like really, really skimpy bathing suits. They um, skimpy bathing suits and they don't get paid any money. Mm -hmm. I mean, were, were you doing that while you had these lumps on your on your yeah. head and your body? Did, did you was that weird? Because like, you know, for, for me, like looking at bodybuilding, it, it feels like there's a lot of I don't want to say vanity, but just real. No, it is. It is. No, I, if you're asking me, did I have one of those leotards on? No, uh -huh. no, no, I, I didn't have a unitard on. I did. No, uh -huh. no, I never did that. I'm I'm the crazy dude that did it in fatigues and boots. Okay. And I, they always thought I was weird because I had to be weird, Howard. I wore winter clothes in the summer because for that reason, I didn't want anybody to see me. I wore a do-rag over my head and people thought I was trying to be tough or a thug. And really, I was trying to hide the tumors that were piercing through the hair that I had not cut since I was 16 because I've been hiding tumors since I was 16. Mm. But we had got to the point where none of my antics were working. Like you could see and if my sat a certain way, they poke out my shirt. And be honest, I felt like I was headed to death because I, I couldn't I couldn't hide it anymore. Mm -hmm. So somehow to give, I've been hiding this from everybody I know my entire life. Yeah. So this is a a personal question that you should feel free to ignore. But I'm wondering about um, you know your intimate relationships. Like if you're trying yes. if you're trying to hide your body and your essence, was did that get in the way was there and see and see that's the thing but and i haven't been with a whole lot of women just because of that you know early on just like i i still i, I still feel like people are grossed out by me you know my wife tells me didn't nobody see it you're fine i want you to be a model but in my head howard i still feel like I infringe on people's sight sometimes. Um, and, and my effort is to make tumors cool. And then sometimes I get looks, you know, from people that they, it does bother me. But I got to keep, I'm not really doing this for me anymore. Yeah. That It, it would have been enough to stop, but I'm, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for everybody that used to think, like I think, that won't come outside or won't go swimming. I got to continue to be strong um, through that. But yeah, always self-conscious, still self-conscious. I just love my tumors now and loving them is 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 the name of the game. But that doesn't mean everybody else has to. And I understand that, too. Mm -hmm. So it's a little weird space I'm in. But hey, I, I'm owning Tumor Boy today. Mm -hmm. And. 
All right. So the the cancers were the the tumors were coming back. You'd you'd had this message in your head ever since you were very young that you were prone to this cancer. Did you feel like like okay, this is this is it now? I did. And um, to be perfectly honest with you, I was when I took deep breaths, I could feel something pressing on my lungs. Um, and I ignored that. That like that's something that should have you schedule a doctor's appointment and I wouldn't I wouldn't the tumor that's depicted in all of the photos I remember when I was taking deep breaths lifting after you do what I do with all that weight you can this is usually how you end up and it's a lot of deep breath and I could feel something back then that's so I know when, when they say they think that it's been there for four five six years that it's healthy I believe them because I, I remember in 07, in 06, feeling something. I was at my biggest then, and I still ignored it. Um, but it was January 2012, and um was in Minneapolis um, meeting with was one of my um, very close friends that's a venture capitalist and we were working on doing um, an, an old re, re, kind of rebranding um, an old project that I did. I did the Be Seen Being Green College Tour that kind of promoted plants and sustainability. Go figure this, Howard. I did. <laughs> this is how God and karma works. So in 2010, I did the biggest um, sustainability concert uh, that, you know, the pop community had ever done. Nobody's really, you know, this is when they were talking stuff about cilantro and whatever that company was. It just wasn't a time for green. Okay. But I had this wild idea that we could do a sustainability based concert because sustainability departments in every college get no love from anybody. Nobody even knows they exist. So I know that if I reached out to them with an idea and some fancy names connected to it, that's going to bring light to what they do. They're going to open up the city for me. It's just how my mind and my business acumen, how it works. So this, this was, this was a, a business thing for you, right? You weren't... Exactly. My intention was wrong, okay? (laughs) This is all about money, but I know they weren't going to put me in a position to make three, four hundred thousand dollars a night if I'm not attached to something. I know where we're at as well. I needed a cause. I'm an entrepreneur. So I closed my eyes and that's what what I said. I'm going to go with the green. Green is, uh, I smoke green and I'm going to be green. (laughs) No. And, you know, I got some family members. I'm not one that tries to do everything. Like, I'm going to get who's strong in the different suits and we'll move as a team. And that's what I did. I, I can't say that I facilitated everything. I got my sister to do it. And then I got my my brother-in-law to do some other things. But it was my idea. I got all the investors. I implemented everything. And they just, they did the work. Like I was kind of CEO, man. Um, I bring people together. 
that are strong in what they do. And then we move energy. That's just how I've always been. And in a nutshell, we sold out 4,000 seats at the James L. Knight Center in, you can Google it, in uh, Miami. And we did the first Be Seen Being Green College Music Tour, partnered with the University of Miami, um, the city of Coral Gables, um, designated April 16th as Be Seen. We got Be Seen Being Green um, Day. And then my partners embezzled the money, the um, embezzled some money. Yeah, how are you? Via receipts and things. So we had an amazing turnout, had 18 cities, prospective cities we're looking at. Um, to duplicate this 18 more times and we didn't get out of Miami um, before they start stealing. I mean, this is my family. That's why I'm, but I'm telling the truth. All I got is the truth. And it broke my heart. And we cut the money up and I just couldn't move forward with these people. So what I was in Minnesota for was rebranding it instead of the Be Seen Being Green College Tour turned into the GNMT, the Green Nation Music Tour, would be the exact same thing, partnered with the same universities and, you know, couple entertainment with education, making it edutainment. And we were bringing the high school kids in for free. We had a good system um, and he was gonna finance everything. So we were celebrating New Year's Eve I didn't have a drink because at the beginning of the night, it felt like a cat was trying to tear. It's like someone was trying to crawl out of my back. It's weird. And, you know, I ignored it in the best of my ability. Um, I don't even think we made it to the actual midnight. I think I was already laying down. Then long story short, drove back from Minneapolis um, I think it was the third or the fourth, um, and was in the University of Chicago shortly thereafter. Um, and I was still trying to wait for it to go away and it never went away. And I'm on my knees in that hospital, paging the doctor I hadn't talked to for 18 years, Howard. I hadn't talked to the man in 18 years, um, paged him. He came downstairs um, and this needed to happen because I had been holding on to this resentment, you know, for more than half of my life now, um, that this man is the reason why my life was crap is because he wasn't honest and I had this surgery that I wouldn't have had and been able to play basketball. So I needed closure. And I said, I never talked to him. And every time I say, I'm never gonna do something, God kind of bam, and that's what he did. And I shared with him, I said, he's like, where have you been, D? Um, I thought you were dead. I was like, well, Doc, I, I feel like I, I've been dead and I feel like you lied to me. I've been angry at you. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, when I asked you the severity of my operation and would I be able to participate, you know, in, in, in the basketball program August 1st, and I explained to you what a big of a deal this is to me, and is there any way that I won't be able to play? And you kind of brushed it off. And 
And I trusted you and believed you because I wouldn't have done the surgery had you told me there's a possibility that I might not have function in my knee. I just wouldn't have done it. He was like, oh, D. And he was sincerely, it was a heartfelt apology. And I wish you would have came to me earlier so we could have talked about this. We hugged. And he's not a guy that hugs. Um, but we hugged and, and this needed to happen. And then he proceeds to ask me, what brought me in there and says, let's go upstairs. We go upstairs and I'm kind of telling him as I'm walking through the door with him and his nurses are kind of cracking jokes. You hear them smirking because I'm this 315 pound monster that's got a tear in his eye and I'm complaining about back pain. And it, it, it doesn't look good to them. They I look like a big baby is, is kind of how I felt that they were feeling mm. based on their behavior. And I, you know, go in his office. I lay down on the on the the table. Um, and again, I'm 100 pounds heavier, muscle everywhere. And he begins to do the physical hand examination with his hand. And where I'm saying the tumor is at, it was there, but it was so much muscle there, he couldn't feel anything. And he's saying, D, I'm just telling you how the body works. If what you're describing is where it's where, where it should be, I should be able to feel it. And, you know, he continues to rub. And then I hear him not get frustrated, but I hear him, you know, not believing that anything is there. His voice, his tone just changed. And he's, then he cuts into me about me, you're awfully big, D. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a power lifter. And then I made the mistake of telling him how much I lift on a regular basis. So that automatically becomes the problem. Well, of course your back is hurting. Mm -hmm. People that lift six, seven hundred pounds and push four fifty out there, they have problems. D, this is normal. And he reaches for his prescription pad, and now you're gonna give me muscle relaxers and pain relievers. And I kind of made it clear in my tone that, Doc, this is different. Like I know my body. Something is not right. This is not muscle. This is this is something else. It's not from weights. He's like, D, trust me, you're not. And he's, again, like this surgery before, he's telling me, trust me. And I'm like, Doc, no, there, there's something in my back. And I kind of, I didn't threaten him. I wasn't threatening, but I kind of made it sure, made him know that I wasn't really leaving the hospital until we figured out something, because I don't think I have another day. Like, this is how bad the pain is. And not because he believed me, but to shut me up, he sent me down for slides. Um, and I go down, and as I'm leaving out of the office, um, now the chuckles are louder. And Mr. Muscle Man's complaining, all those muscles, blah, 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 blah. And I walked out with my head down. I mean, what can I say to him? I just... It didn't feel good, but I took it, went downstairs. Now, Howard, you know that radiologists generally don't release slides unless they do a report. It's just not protocol 
to release um, x-rays or MRIs or anything without some type of documentation attached to it. Mm -hmm. My slides, however, they beat me upstairs. Okay? And when I got upstairs, it went from laugh at D to the nurses are quiet, desolate, and looking at their feet. And, and the energy is just, I can just feel something's not right. And his door opens. And he won't look at me. I'm like, here we go. He said, D, come in, please. Um, I walk through the door. He sits me down. Um, and the slide that presents itself has a very, very significant mass on it. Um, it looked like a like a gerbil or a, a mouse or a hamster or something that was sitting flush on my spine. And he began to tell me that he didn't think it was operable um, because NF tubers are connected to sheaths. And the sheaths on small tumors look like um, veins and the sheaths on tumors. My side are kind of consistent with an umbilical cord. And being that it had been in there so long, it had wrapped itself around some of my vital organs. And he was basically saying that, you know, the hospital doesn't generally do surgery because a patient wants them to do surgery. They do surgery based on success and reference. And there's nobody that has lived in a similar situation. So he was just telling me the worst case scenario. Like, you know, we don't really operate when it's this bad. Like it's gone too far. Mm -hmm. He said, but look, I'm going to talk to my peers and to my boss and to my team. Um, and give me 24 hours. I can't make you any promises, but I'm going to do what I can. Longest 24 hours of my life. Um, and he calls and says, well, they're going to allow me to operate, allow us to do do the surgery. I was happy. And um, how he explains it was like a episode of House when he's standing in the boardroom with all his peers in the hospital Um the hospital board members and, and just all the elites in the hospital that make the decisions on surgeries. And he's saying that they're basically telling me that, you know, if something happens to this young man, that this is your career because we're telling you you're going to kill him. Like we've saved nobody else that's been in a similar position, but just like the house, he's always ends up being right. As crazy as his um, prognosis are, they work. They somehow work. He, he, Whatever he does, it works. And they allowed my doctor and his team to do the surgery. Um, and they successfully removed a two pound, seven centimeter mass flush off my spine. Um, it was a nine hour operation but I made it through. And, and the biggest thing was signing the papers to say that I might be paralyzed. Like I, I read everything. I don't even talk about that. 
Uh, it's the first interview I said that. But, you know, reading the words that we are not responsible if you suffer from paralysis and me having to sign off on that. And then in my head, you know, just visualizing not walking because somebody tells you that you might not be able to walk. I don't care who you are or how strong you are. That's going to resonate in your brain that after this surgery, my eyes open, my legs might not be able to move. Um, but on the flip side of that, I also knew that nobody else was even in a position to get this surgery that has been in my position. So I was kind of scared and grateful at the same time. We waited two weeks for that pathology report to come back and celebrated, you know, like it was 1999, like Prince's song says, it was just, it was a great time. And that phone rang that Friday and his nurse, Debbie, was like, D, um, we like to, and she was all chipper. She's like, okay, your pathology is back. I want you to come in. And came in and I was happy, right? Because I couldn't tell anything on the phone. But when I walked through the office doors, the same energy when I was walking in to get the slides, it was this. I said, come on, here we go. And sure enough, he sits me down and informs me that my tumor is positive for MPNST. That's malignant peripheral neurological sheath tumor. And just reminded me, even though I had all these facts, that, you know, post-operation life expectancy is generally zero to six years. Six years, meaning that it was atypia, which means it was precancerous and hadn't completely converted, um, or they caught it early. But zero, meaning it was two pounds and seven centimeters. It's nobody on record that's had that much MPNST concentrated in their body, and there'd be a recourse for that. And, you know, that did break me down. Howard, I, I, I gotta, I gotta admit that, but like I told you earlier, it broke me down for a very small time because I was forced to tap into an energy that was greater than myself. And I tapped into my mother, you know? And like I told you earlier, while this woman was dying, she was in front of my high school with the megaphone condoms and HIV prevention literature. And I just knew she was turning over in her grave that I'm even thinking about quitting, thinking about giving up on life based on some statistics or what man said when before she died, I was in church three times a week. And, and I just, I could feel her. I'm like, get it together, D. What you doing? Mm -hmm. And I told him, I said, look, doc, I don't care what we have to do. Like, I'm not going to hospice because he encouraged me to meet with the hospice counselor, you know? And, 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 you know, a doctor's job is to tell you everything. And he told me everything. That I probably wouldn't make it through June um, of that year. I need to get my affairs in order just in case. It just was stuff I don't want to hear. Because unless you talk to God, like, 
through text message or Facebook or a phone call. How do you know I'm going to die in June unless you kill me? I didn't verbalize that, but I just, I wasn't ready to give up on life. And I told him, whatever we got to do, I'll sign whatever. But I got people counting on me and I, I, I can't just get ready and prepare to die. Like that's not an option. So I got what I asked for, Howard. I said, do anything you want and whatever you have to. And then that turned into seven back-to-back nine-hour operations from January to November with over 225 tumors removed in that small amount of time. Um, and, the, and the imperative there was they all had to go to save your life. Then, yeah, the, so... Being that nobody's really thrown a billion dollars at NF or MPNST, because that's what it takes for 30 or 40 years of trials and studies. Nobody's done that. The general consensus when treating us, (laughs) you ready for this, Howard? Is to remove everything you see that's big, because everything lights up on a PET scan, and anything that was pre-existing that grew. So for me, I had 225 big ones that had to come out. I mean, because it is a fact that the bigger ones kind of convert. Like they have a higher propensity to convert than smaller to ones. To pervert, convert to... Um... So they're benign tumors that convert into malignant tumors. Gotcha. So, so it's like a whack-a-mole. The, the higher they come up, the more dangerous they are. Exactly. Exactly. Precisely. And so I had had quite a few of the bigger ones. And man, from my head to my toe, Howard, they took those 225, um, took one out of my thigh that was two pounds, but it wasn't malignant. And I'm just blessed um, to have been gone, having gone through this um, experience and because it's it's taught me about the body and how resilient it. I know we hear this, but the body is absolutely amazing if you put the right things in it. Like I heard people, the body will rebuild itself. I used to think those were just words, but I've had an experience, you know, that's really changed my outlook on that statement. Yeah. So let's, let's get to um, where, where you are now, you know, you have a teacher, you have a Buddhist practice, and we're not having this conversation because you're still guzzling whey and creatine and, and, and no. casein and chicken breast, right? So so this is how um, the transformation of the transition transpired. Um, I'm a lifetime fitness guy, and my teacher is a lifetime fitness guy as well. Um, and when I got diagnosed... We had mutual friends that knew each other, but we didn't know each other. I knew of him and he knew of me, but we didn't know each other. And everybody's encouraged me. This guy could save you. But in the back of my head, I knew this was also the vegan guy, the plant guy. And I was still in meathead mode. And I said, man, the day I talk to this guy, I'm going to look like Carl Lewis. I'm going to lose everything. And this is what I was thinking about, Howard, instead of staying alive. I'm still in my pride and ego. 
I'm thinking about how much weight I'm going to lose and how I'm going to look in the mirror instead of, I need to listen to everything this guy says because he he possibly can save my life. That's how sick I was, how sick we can be as men. I still want to worry about this. And I dodged him for a few months. He likes to say years, but it was a few months. Um, and he found me in his cafe and tapped me on the shoulder. I was actually hiding from him because he was at, he was supposed to be at my gym and I was supposed to be at his, but he stayed at his gym because I think somebody told him, I think he's avoiding you. Hmm. And I'll never forget that day. He tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Mr. Evans, do you want my help? Because I'm not going to chase you. I don't chase people to help them. And I said, yes. And he said, write your address down and your phone number, and I'll be there Sunday with 21 plant-based meals. And the name of this gentleman is Master Vegan Chef David Choi, who is uh, responsible for several um, several high-profile individual chefs um, training that has in turn made a lot of famous people um, live the way they live today, notably Oprah. Um, this, I'm not going to say what I usually say. The, the 1990s version of Oprah was Dave. Um, Phil Jackson, the Zen master, was Dave-influenced. Um, Luke Longley, when he came to the Chicago Bulls, was a very big guy. Kind of got introduced to Dave. He had a 13 pack. I don't, we don't even know how that was possible for a center. <laughs> um, and Dave founded the first vegan restaurant in Chicago. It's been there for 40 years. It's called Amidable. Um, it is the first vegan restaurant. And what Master Vegan Chef David Choi teaches is that no matter what cancer you're fighting, the common denominator is the acidic environment that your pH is in. Bottom line. Um, and what he reads from is a 3,000-year-old Buddhist medicinal scroll that's written in Mandarin. Um, that really predates whatever we think we know. Um, he's in his 70s and looks 30. His teacher's 109 and still drives around Chicago and runs the Buddhist temple. And the state can't take her license until she fails the vision, hearing, and driving test. And she hasn't failed. And this is why I listen to these people. But when I met him, he said, D, I can save you, but you're going to have to give up everything you love. I said, OK, Dave, what does that mean? Meat, dairy, yeast and sugar. I kind of put my hand over my head like that is everything. Dave. That's literally everything I get up in the morning for is meat, dairy, yeast and sugar. They make me big and strong. He's like, it's poison. I said, why? He said, because the acidity created by that lifestyle and the fact that you as a lazy human being doesn't chew your food 70 times, you're being very naive to think that it moved through 30 feet of tubing from mouth to rectum. And I think about that. I said, what is he talking about? He's talking about my GI tract. He said, if you don't chew your food into a paste form, 
It's not just miraculously clumps of food just move through your GI. So it's not how this works. He said, and if the GI isn't cleaned out to the best of your ability daily, and he used FORD as the acronym, Fix or Repair Daily. If you do not practice this daily and program your body, your body will program you. And I let that sit in. And he's like, I'm going to shed. And he started hitting me in the stomach. He said, you got abs, but they're under all this fat. And he's hitting me. And he's, I'm really feeling like three feet tall. Um, he says in about six to eight weeks of fasting from meat, dairy, yeast, and sugar, your body will go into natural starving mode, sort of like a episode of Naked and Afraid. Those people go on there on that show, they're all gung-ho at their regular weight. And depending on them finding, being good hunters and finding food sources, those people dwindle. And if they don't find it, they usually get airlifted because that's what starving to death does to you. It makes you go crazy. And what he taught me was that the same thing that happens to them, but they go into shock because there's no like counterbalance. What he did with me is from week one to week six, I have these meals that do taste like dirt because I'm used to meat, dairy, yeast, and sugar, but they were something. And instead of me jump, dropping, falling right off the cliff, I kind of incrementally fell in slow motion instead of making a straight job. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's what we, what we would now call like a fasting mimicking diet. Exactly. Exactly. You, you get a lot of the benefits of the fasting but you're not wasting away and your body isn't going into uh, emergency mode. Exactly, exactly. And what I watched my body do through the amazing bowel movements that I had that, that scare you. Cause you're like, I didn't even eat that much. Like, where did that come from? And then to just wrap my head around, you've been just walking around with old food in your gut. Like that is something like when you really nail somebody down and have them really process that, like you're walking around with old meat, old bread and old milk, <laughs> like wondering why you feel bad. And when that clicked for me, it, it, it felt like the whole world shifted because now I'm trying to get the rest of the stuff out because now, uh, uh. And let me tell you, Howard, even though I'm seeing these results, I do what you're never supposed to do as a as a student. I say, why is the way in the case thing? I don't understand. They're liquid. They move through your GI. And it kind of perturbed him. And he was like, look, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not even going to debate this. At your next doctor's appointment, I want you to ask for the detailed pathology report. And we're at a place in time where they can show you the protein markers and levels that fueled each tumor growth in pathology. That's how our technology is. And to see the words casein and whey attributed to my tumor protein it kind of shook me up more than I've ever been shooken before in the sense that it was 
verification that my lifestyle behavior, my lifestyle behavior, nobody else, me drinking powdered meat three times a day for 17 years is the reason I'm in the predicament I'm in. It was so eye-opening, Howard. It, it, it really, it really woke me. I'm just I'm thinking like all this stuff that you've done for muscles and you were slowly killing yourself, like literally killing myself. It's very powerful. And, and the, no one ever told you this so that, you know, you had this congenital condition or condition from very, very young that I guess our society assumes progresses the way it did in you. And all of a sudden, you're like an N of one saying that it doesn't have to be this way. Right, right. It, it doesn't have to be this way. But and I and that's why I know this is my mission It's just sharing this information and using my extreme story to keep and captivate your attention. I mean, because this information is not new, though. That's the disturbing thing. This is not astrophysics, Howard, and this isn't a new revelation, you know, but it's been so easy for society to ignore things, but we're at a point, you know, I resigned from my position in the American Cancer Society, but I served for four years as a lobbyist using my story as the shiny object to pass legislation in D.C., but in that journey, I've just been privy to some numbers that the rest of us aren't privy to and the trajectory for colon rectal cancer in America is 75% of this country will have some form in 2020 by 2025. That is disturbing to me. And that's not that far away. We are in trouble. We're in a crisis. And I know part of me being here is that I made the decision. I did something totally outside of the box. I told my doctor and my oncologist to take a hike and I started listening to the Buddhist monk. But that's what it is on the surface. At the end of the day, I got some information that I've personally seen impact and reverse lives, reverse situations. Like personally, it's been six years of this. I've come across hundreds and thousands of people in my six-year journey that have implemented these things and had monumental success. But I'm not a doctor, and I can't really be out here saying all that. Um, specifically, I, I share information as a cancer patient. I share my journey and what helped me. That's about where I'm at and how I have to talk. But I know this is why I'm here, because we're dying and we're sick more than ever. So what's what's your daily protocol now? I know you work out a lot more than the average person and you you credit that with uh, with keeping you going. Take take us through like a, a day in your life now. A typical day in the life of DeAnthony Evans is I have an amazing wife that kind of um she has a She's a consultant, does her other business, but she's also taking me on as a business partner in the sense that all I have to do is train, um, get on my mentor calls, have surgeries, and speak. 
and she handles all the business, which has alleviated a lot of the emotional burden. So my days are dedicated to getting up at 3.30 in the morning, um, meditating, making some posts, um, clearing out my, I like to call it clearing out my chest um, to make room for new new junk, if you will. We, we collect junk every day, whether we like it or not. Um, then I'm at the gym from anywhere for three to six hours regularly. And then I'll come home, do a um, cannabis treatment to let my nerves ease. Because what people don't understand, when you have NF and you don't take their drugs, um, literally all day, because I walk on them, I sit on them. If I lay down, I lay on them. It's like just having needles. Like wait, every time you get comfortable, something to make you move, which is cool. That's better than not being here. But I need at least an hour or two for my body to settle down. And then I'm ready to get after an interview like with you or do some camera work or whatever. But she kind of orchestrates whenever I'm booked around that type of schedule. When I met you, that it was the same thing. You didn't really see me. But when you didn't see me, I was either training or laying down, doing, and that's the maintenance of this. I make it look very easy, but the, it, it's really not. Uh-huh. It's really worth uh-huh. it. It's worth it. Yeah. What about, what about the diet? The diet will start with uh, about a fistful of pine nuts. Um, can I get a, a, a container of pine nuts and bring them to the camera real quick? Sure. Would you like sure. that? Sure. Hold on one second. That's a large container. That That's, we agreed as three and a half, four pounds. Yeah, that's like $100 worth of pine nuts. Actually, these are $82 a pound. That's like $400 worth of pine nuts. But, okay. <laughs> but this is, but look, hear me out. Chemo is 200000 a week. We, we have to have our priorities in order. But what this allows me to do is have the mass that I have and the strength that I have. Calorically, this is equivalent. Calorically, this is equivalent to 14 filet mignons minus the butt and the cheeks and the, you know, the other things you get from eating 14 filet mignons every day. And what he taught me is that yeah, you hear about the body can only process so much protein, la 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 la, and that's true. But when they're making these blanket statements, they're referring to one protein. Then that's not all protein. That's meat protein. Meat protein doesn't burn like it sits. It's fat. It burns like a candle. So yeah, things sit with all that acidity in them. They're gonna have adverse effects. My pine nuts, however. They burn like a firecracker. I'm going to be hungry after I eat all of this. It's still going to make me hungry Um, and will be out of my body in the stool in no less than eight hours every day for the last six years. Like this ain't year one. This is year six. And as crazy as people, you know, like you're going to eat nuts for the rest of your life. Yeah. I'm not going to change anything. Like, you don't get to your sixth year, start changing things when nobody else in your situation is here. Right. And and I just want to make sure that the people who are listening to this understand, because everyone wants a shortcut. And, right. you know, and I do too, right? So, right. like, 
the, what the point here is not that D. Anthony says everybody should eat a fistful of pine nuts. Right? No, not at all. Right. Not at all. The, the point is that if you, you know, attain to be an optimal athlete with big muscles, the only way to gain weight or, you know, build your body is through nuts, in, in my opinion, because I can only go off what I've used. It's just an alternate protein, and it's as simple as boiling them, blending them, and serving yourself as opposed to buying dried, add water, and stir at the store. It's really no – most people buy convenience. This is kind of manual, but it's the same thing, just this is healthier. And I don't have a desire for everybody – to eat pine nuts, but I do have a desire to teach people that if you continue to drink fake powdered meat that's unregulated by anybody and says it, um, some some things are going to come visit you. And, and I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that things that can sit on shelves for three and four years that you drink every day and think they leave your body in eight hours, you're being very naive. That's all I want everybody right. to know. And, and that the pine nuts you're eating are balanced with three to six hours of workout. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because sumo wrestlers that he mentors too, they eat this too. And they, I mean, it does, it does whatever you want it to do. That's an amazing point. If I sat around, if I ate that and sat around, I'd blow up. I would. It's no question. Gotcha. So, so after the pine nuts, what, what else makes up your diet? Um, it's pine nuts, and then I just I'll snack on um you know a gluten free tortilla chip with um my wife makes homemade hummus, and just we got several homemade tofu snacks and things that we do to just keep me busy. But my eating is about these nuts. Like I don't eat for me. Like that's not a part of my life anymore. Mm. Eating for tongue. I don't eat for tongue anymore. I eat for fuel. And this is this is him. This is his words. He said, you're never going to get over the meat and dairy. You're going to let it go. Like you're not eating for your tongue anymore. What has your tongue done for you ever? Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Anything positive ever come from your tongue? You need to eat for your body, D. And that was hard. It was hard. It was the hardest, one of the hardest things I've ever done. But again, I was given six months to live in January 2012. We are almost halfway through. 2017. 20, 2018. 20, and 2018, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, got, I'm, I'm, I'm reminiscing. You got an extra year right, right there. <laughs> um, so you you now, I saw you at the Wellness Forum Conference. You, you, you're involved with the plant-based community, and yet a lot of the plant-based ethos is kind of against what you're saying. Like it's all about the, the, the plant-based tongue. Right. Oh, look how good, how delicious we can make this. How do you navigate that? You know, everybody has their journey and the people with the ethos and the plant based to put their life next to mine. And then you see how you want to look and feel. And, and we all here for different reasons. I'm here. So my body performs in line with that of the professional athletes that regular my advice. And I need to be the brand so I can't be encouraging those hundred million dollar people to do things and then I'm not doing them myself. Like they clearly get it because I'm just D. I'm not a doctor, but 
my phone was ringing. So for, for folks who are listening who want to gain the benefit of your guidance and wisdom, um, yes, what, what do you, I mean, do you have to be a hundred millionaire to work with you or? No, no. Um, you know, to be perfectly honest, the majority of my time, and you've been on my thread, you've seen some of those success stories, is dedicated to the children and young adults. Not that we don't help adults, but a old, hardened adult mind, you know, I, I'm not trying to convince anybody to do anything. I'm trying to help people who are in the red zone, um, preferably children who have only been here 16, 17, 18 years, if that, and show them that it's worth fighting for. My NF community, our suicide rate is in the 26th percentile for young adults and children because nobody's ever sat with them at lunch. Nobody's ever dated you. It's a very lonely, lonely, lonely life being tumor person, okay? And these kids live in the time of Google. I didn't live in Google era. Like I couldn't be like this and they tell me the a million times of how bad I have it. These kids have access to Google. And if you read the first five pages of Google and what we have, and you're a kid with low self-esteem that nobody's ever dated, you've always been self-conscious about your tumors, and you've always felt alone, guess what? It's not worth, it's not worth it. It's not worth moving forward in a life full of what you've already experienced. And your parents don't know what to tell you. And your doctor has nothing to tell you because there's no research. They tell you to join a, a, a trial. And then you continue to investigate with your computer. And it gets worse. The information gets worse. Then you bump into me. And then I get an inbox. Man, D, I don't know how I came across you. But I was, I was tired of living. But I came across one of your videos. And now I want to fight. Okay, that's really who I do this for. You know, I do it for my family. I do it for my children. I do it for my wife. But I do it for the person that has no more hope. Because earlier in this interview, I was the person with no hope. And I just want to be that person that shows them we haven't messed up. But having it messed up is a lot better than not having anything at all. And I am you. I'm no different. And if you just hold on and be still in the storm, you can have exactly what I have and I will help you. Most of my energy goes towards that. But everybody can um, get in tune with the movement. We have a nonprofit called Sheree Inspires. It was named after my mother. It should be up and running um, by June but it will be geared toward um, making these kids that I'm speaking about feel special in the form of holistic retreats and things that they can do where it's secluded and they're with their family and they don't have to deal with the gawking eyes. Um, when Make-A-Wish gives neurofibromatosis children wishes, um, to like Disney World or places with water slides, guess what? The kids still don't participate 
because they do not want anybody to see their tumors in a public setting. So the the gesture was great and, and make a wish meant well, <coughs> but the child couldn't maximize the opportunity because he's still in public. So what we're in the process of doing is creating um, destinations that are more secluded where we can fly the whole family to and you guys can have your vacation in paradise by yourself. That'd be part of what we do with Sheree Inspires. It's just making these tumor children feel normal for a day if it has to be. Cause I just I just know I hear this from my I hear this till I got sick, Howard. People know me 30 years, never knew I was sick. I was a I'm a childhood camp like tumor patient. Like that nobody knew. <laughs> and I don't want any other kid to feel like that. This is why in my videos I wear half a shirts. Because I want everybody to see the tumors. Even if you don't like them, I know that a kid that sees me exposing my tumors, you know, I know who I'm communicating with when I do it. I know they're looking at me like, okay, he's showing his stuff. I don't have to really worry about showing my stuff. And that's a, a lot of what my mission is about. Um, coupled with the plant-based education, what the adult can get from me is seminars and workshops where we do teach you how to reverse, prevent, and manage disease through the plant-based lifestyle, um, you know, using my teachings through Dave and demonstrations and other things that I've implemented in my survivorship. And you can reach us at deanthonytrains at gmail.com. And we often send what we call a starter kit. And it's just a plethora of information, documentaries, a copy of the China study PDF, because I feel like a person can't make this transition until they fully understand why they're doing it. You're gonna fail. When your brain begins to work against you, because that's what it does when it doesn't get what it's been getting, um, you need help, you need assistance. And, and in a perfect world, I will have a, a resource component where you can call in and we give you help and all that. We're just not there yet, Howard. But my life, the rest of it's been de dedicated to um, service before self and advocacy and awareness and sharing this message and, and how this information can help, help, help you help your family. Right. And the, the extremes in your life make you so incredibly credible. <laughs> so, so someone, someone listening to this is thinking, well, I, you know, I had kind of a rough childhood. I says, well, you know, D has me beat there. You know, I've got some, yeah. I've got some health challenges. Well, you know, there's, there's something about the extremes that you've experienced yes. and, and that on the flip side, you've chosen. If some, you know, I, like right. I'm listening to you saying, well, I could never work out three to six hours a day. And as I think it, I go, well, that's not true. Right. It's not true. It's not true. Ask me why I began to train okay. like that. Why did you begin to train like that? Well, when the doctor looks you in your face and says, look, we'll probably do be doing one to three operations until you die, um, because this is just the nature of where you're at. When you hear that you'll be having one to three surgeries every year until your possible death, it does something to your spirit. 
if you're any type of, I can't say a real person, but if you're a person that really has the fight, you should know you're going to have to do your part because the body is not designed for its heartbeat to be brought close to death. it be cut and then revived like just forever. It's just going to quit on you. So in my mind, I began, and this is my post today, and Dave encourages this, um, move from just being strong to an endurance athlete and tried to mimic what my body would go through rigor-wise during the course of a nine-hour operation. I haven't got up to training nine hours, though, Howard. The six is the most. But the whole reason that I built this endurance up is so my body is in line with that of a professional athlete from my head to my toe when they're cutting me so I can come back. And people thought I was crazy, but I've snapped back from every operation and, and trained in between every single one of them when I shouldn't have been able so to. So it's like your sport is nine hour operations. Yes. And that's why we call it training to live. Like I don't work out. I train to live. When you work out, you can do that when you feel like it. You can take a day off. You can rest. My psyche is if I don't train, I'm going to die. It's a very different mindset. But I feel like if you really care about your body like you say you care about it, nutrition, spirituality, and fitness, as my teacher taught me, should be firing perpetually at the same time to reach your optimal health. And, you know, I just got to thank David Choi again because he taught me how to submit my pride and ego. I don't have a desire to be right. I know how to walk away. There's so many things that the old D did not have in his toolbox. You know, he didn't know how to deal with emotion at all. And it's just been an invigorating experience um, to step outside of my old self and, and step into this new body. How do you spell David Choi's last name? Um, C-H-O-I. Um, Chef Dave on Facebook. And I'm not sure what the Instagram is, but it might be the same. Okay. But yeah, Chef David Choi. And then we have David Choi Jr. So Dave is actually retired. Um, he still feeds me and the cancer people, but doesn't run the restaurant. Gave that to his um, brother. But his son, David Choi Jr., um, has kind of been giving the apron in the sense that he's taken over all cooking responsibilities. He has an amazing um, health bar called Fighter. And that's in a majority of Whole Foods. And it's a phytonutrients bar that um, is housed in a refrigerator because it's real food. It's the only bar that I've seen that is refrigerated in Whole Foods, which means it's real food. And it tastes amazing. But so David Choi Jr. has been given the responsibility of carrying on um, David Sr.'s um, plant-based medicinal recipes as the cook. His son, Rocky, um, just got back from Brisbane, has a double PhD, one of them in food science, that backs up all the words that come out of my mouth. And then you have me that's been given the microphone to spread the message. Rocky is to prove the message. And David is to cook the message. 
And, <laughs> and that's the food heals. And what we put in our bodies either going to create disease or fight it. It's a real simple message. Um, and together, we're just trying to keep the old man's legacy and the teachings um, going. And, and I'm just blessed and honored out of his two sons, he chose me to carry the microphone. I mean, it's not like I could have got the double PhD and cooked anyway, but it's just, (laughs) it's enlightening that, um, you know, I've been given such an honor just knowing how much he's revered in the world. It's, it's, it's a great thing. The Dalai Lama, when he's in town, they stop at a middle. Um, a middle is the Buddhist opening prayer by definition amid the bowl that is the opening prayer of buddhism um so i've just it's just been an amazing ride howard um i'm just trying to help as many people as i can while i'm still here well you know you you've got at least two phds in life <laughs> thank you thank you you know I, thank I, you. I have one and i've got to say the main muscle that it took was my butt just sort of sit sitting there for <laughs> six years so well that congratulations you got it you got it but the, you got but it your, your your phd in life you know you, did, you didn't necessarily know what you were studying for or why uh, but <laughs> you know i think it's very clear to anyone who's listening now like regardless of what you think about you know, fate or destiny or divinity or anything that you have, you've chosen, a, you know, you've chosen an, an, an inevitable path for yourself. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I've been running from the path, you know, like I know this is my purpose and I feel stronger than ever because it's not a mystery a lot of us don't know why we're here. You know, that's the big, why am I here? Why was I born? Like, I know I was born for no other reason than to go through all that I've gone through and then share it. Like the complete opposite of what I desired. I was going to fight cancer in the closet. And the rumor mill had begun to brew so much in my community that people were calling my grandmother and my sister asking where to send funeral arrangements. We heard he's on his deathbed. And they're they're like, you gotta say something. And I really didn't wanna say anything. I hadn't told anybody I had tumors to begin with. And I just jump off the cliff like I have cancer. And I I just didn't want, I just wanted to deal with it by myself. And in reflection, as I look at it, it's like, that was my opportunity to either coward out, and I know I'd be dead, or face it and embrace it. And if you go on my timeline to 2012, my first post, I addressed the peanut gallery. And I, I, I respectfully say, if you're waiting for me to die, you stay tuned. And I posted every day since then stitches staples the whole thing just that re that that allowed me to get out of my shell the fact that people thought that i was i gave up now i'm not a quitter mm. and it kind of fueled this public fishbowl persona that i was totally against one more time i've been hiding my body from the world my whole life until 2012 
like this is a divine crossroad. The guy like shoved me out onto the stage. Like you're going to perform or you're going to die. And I chose to perform. Like threw me out on the stage. I didn't want to go out on the stage. But I'm here and the lights are on. What you going to do, D? And I step forward, Howard. And I step forward. I'm just taking it in. I'm, and, I'm, and I'm giving... Let me choke you up. I'm crying I'm give, too. I'm giving my uh, my audience a chance to, you know, to to hear it slowly and and let it sink in. I understand. I understand. This is my mission, and I appreciate you providing your platform to allow me to get it to a few more ears. I really do. Well, it's a it's a great honor. I, I hope uh, people who listen to this will go will. We'll follow you, check you out. I hear. I hope the people who listen to this have even bigger stages and megaphones to uh, <laughs> to allow you to do your thing. Yes, this sir. is this is now the uh, the, the record. This is um, as of today. I've done I think two hundred and seventy five episodes. Two hundred and sixty are published. Congratulations! This is the longest one I've ever done. So. Uh, Congratulations! Thank. You. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, well, we'll have to wait and hear from people, but I'm certain. Okay. I'm certain that it's a. Okay. I mean, you know, the conversation okay. goes until uh, until it doesn't, and this yeah. is you have, uh, you know, with with most people we deal with the story, the prelude, and they get you know in a few minutes, and then we yes. talk a lot about yes. right your your prelude was so so rich <laughs> and has something for everyone. Thank you. You know, you Thank say you. that everyone can relate to something. Um, I was born on my father's birthday. So when so when you wow. talked about your mother, I'm like, yeah, my birthdays are sad now and they're happy and they're confusing. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, you've you've got you've you've wow. got enough of a backstory that that everyone who's who has humanity can can relate to it. Thank you. So, Thank you. So man. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I appreciate it. I really do, yeah. and um, I appreciate being on your show. Well, this is great. Well, thanks, thanks again. Now, now I'm, I'm not going to say I'm going to go work out for three hours, but I'm going to move my body. <laughs> there you go. I hope I had something to do with that. And um, on that project, I'm I'm all in. Just just tell me what we're doing. Awesome. I'm in. All right. D. Anthony Adams, thank you so, so much for all you do and for generously giving us the time today. Thank you for having me, Howie. I really appreciate it. Be well. You too. Thank you. I hope the fact that you're still listening means that you were as changed, as touched, as inspired, as re-energized and refocused by this conversation as I was and am. Wow, huh? And I just spoke to D. Anthony Today, I called him up because I needed a photo. I didn't have the photo that you'll see of me, of me and him at the Wellness Forum Health Conference. And I called him around one o'clock in the afternoon, and I didn't realize that he's in Hawaii. And he just picked up right away and was chipper. And even though it was like six in the morning, he is already up and at him. And just a, a wonderful person to have in our corner, meaning the corner of those who uh, promote life and wellness and, and justice. Um, and education and all the good things that uh, that need to uh, 
to spread in the world for the for the blessings of this planet to be distributed among all of us for for the foreseeable future. All right, so if you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast and you would like to support the mission of the show, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also share this in other episodes on social media, and you can become a patron at uh, plantyourself.com. Just look on the right sidebar for the Patreon link. With a, a, a monthly contribution, I'm, I'm over $500 a month, which allowed me to uh, go to New York and buy a new H6 handy recorder, and I've already uh, got a... Um, a confirmation of a very exciting interview that I'm going to be doing uh, live locally, so not over the phone or Skype, and I'll let you know more about that when it's in the can. So I don't. Uh, what What are some vegan metaphors for not crying over spilled? Uh, I guess kombucha, uh, almond milk. You, you get the idea. Um, all right, what else we got going on? The big change program, as you know, is now uh, part of WellStart Health. And again, if you go to wellstarthealth.com slash program, you can just squeeze into this next cohort. Um, if you want the show notes for today's episode um, with links so that you can actually get uh, DeAnthony's starter guide, I have that link in there as well at plantyourself.com slash 270. If you're new to the show, catch up on 269 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. I've got a new uh, transcript from one of the interviews that I did a few months ago with uh, Cyrus Kambada and Robbie Barbaro talking about um, defeating or mastering or living with type 1 diabetes on a plant-based diet. Thanks to uh, Beth Hillman, that, is, that transcript is now up and available uh, at plantyourself.com slash 258. In garden news, we're getting kale from the garden. Woohoo! And we got some blueberries that are about a week away from being ripe. It's been a crazy spring. Most things are way behind, but the blueberries look like they're a couple of weeks or even maybe a month ahead. So who knows what's going on. Uh, and running news, I did a good run this morning and yesterday, seven miles each day, feeling pain-free. Um, again, if you, if you want to learn how to do that and you want my... Uh, Secret guy in New York, drop me a line, hj at plantyourself.com, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll share those, uh, those secret goodies. All right, thank you to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. Let's bring it up. You can find more of Will's music at willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jean Wheeler, Adam Callie, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Fulkanovsky, David Bysak, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Felton, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Holly Peck, Michelle Henry, Josina, Julian, Roland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ron Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peters, and Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila, Sarah David, Don Hugh, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Viasov, Gio and Carolyn, Arjitati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Equally Mysterious, Tracy Lee, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Cinnamon. Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Alon, Molly Levine, Inscrutable, Harry R. Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plan Happy Oregon, Samin Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Theresa Cobleshell, Ruthless, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Roseland, Diot, Julie Lang, Home Hedegaard, Isa Tuzin, Wakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cherry Olakoski, A Plant Power for Health, Got Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild. 
Kelly Baker, Miracle Land, Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelden, Valatie, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divot, and Joshua Summermeyer for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this episode. As always, be well, my friends. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Assert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva L, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumakani, Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis. Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Lehman. Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedable Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>